and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and guys, I can't even hide it. I am so freaking excited about what we're going to be talking about today because I've been wanting to talk about this for a really long time now. And as a matter of fact, if you cast your memory back to, I would say, the uh, tail end of uh, last year, I released uh, a bunch of episodes all about the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, specifically, this was about the five years later era of the Legion of Superheroes. And I even went sort of a step beyond even that. And I released um, an episode about Legion of Superheroes number one, you know, volume three, number one, basically the first issue of the five years later run of the Legion. and. In retrospect, I do sort of regret that because of the fact that those episodes were released as episodes of Trinus Magnus Jabs Reality, and the shtick with Trinus Magnus Jabs Reality is that those episodes are not numbered. You understand? So I can't really sit here and tell you to download episode number whatever of Trinus Magnus Jabs Reality because of the fact that those episodes don't really have numbers, and so it's not really possible to download, like, a specific episode. I mean, that, there's no frame of reference is what, is what I'm trying to say, but basically, I've, you know, and I've kind of given it away now, but basically, I'm going to be talking today about Legion of Superheroes, Volume 3, Number 2. If you want to hear me talking about Legion of Superheroes, Volume 3, Number 1... Well, I wish there was an easier way to do it, but unfortunately, you're just going to have to uh, go to the uh, uh, your iTunes feed, or you're going to have to go to the uh, Two True Freaks homepage, or whatever you've got. Basically, find some kind of way and search for that episode of Trennis Magnus Jabs Reality, wherein I announce that I'm talking about Legion of Superheroes, Volume 3, Number 1, if you want to hear me talk about that issue but unfortunately i can't give you a specific episode number because there are no specific episode numbers so anyway that's kind of whatever anyway so but that's that's pretty much that guys i freaking love what i what i've come to understand is i i like the legion in general yes but i've got a real soft spot for the five years later era of the legion and it's not that, like I say, it's not that I don't like any anything else about the Legion, but this this five years later era, this is really where my heart is. And you know, the fact of the matter is, I'm I'm, I'm kind of having a uh, sort of a hard time figuring out if my my disenchantment with the Legion of Superheroes three boot stuff from uh, 2004, whether or not that's due to the fact that Mark Wade's star with me has really fallen a lot over the course of the last year or so, or if it's more of an objective thing that the characters, it's not just my imagination, you know, when you really do pay attention to, you know, the writing and the dialogue and all that fun stuff, the characters really do, they all seem to have sort of the same exact voice, and one is not really distinguishable from another, you know? Does that make sense? So, I don't know. And then you get going into things like the post-Zero Hour Legion, which, guys, I tried. Uh, you know, I mean, I really do. I try to 
to to love the the post zero hour legion but something about that just seems off especially after i would say the first year or two something about that just seems strange or wrong or out of place or something i don't even know but something something about the post zero hour legion again it's not that it's bad but it, it it's like you've got a splinter in your finger you know you know that something feels weird it's not that it hurts but something feels really fucked up with with your finger well same thing with the post zero hour legion it isn't that it's bad something about this just feels off you know I, and so you start you start in on the five years later stuff and i don't even know what it is but something about this just speaks to my soul you know and i'll be the first to admit that you know the five years later stuff it there there, there does come a point I, I would be lying if i denied this but there does come a point when the wheels really do come off the wagon you know there's there's really no denying that and honestly i would put a lot of that down to just the a lot of chickens are coming home to roost basically especially near the end of the five years later series you know the volume three series you know a lot of chickens are coming home to roost with the legion of superheroes by that point and so i guess what i'm trying to say is yeah there are problems especially with latter day five years later but that's not that's not a deficiency with the material You know what I mean? This isn't that it, it, the reason that all of those problems were happening circa, I would say, especially from about 1992, 1993, 94 and through there. It's not that there's something wrong with this book. It's that the Legion's continuity at that point was so fucked up and there was so much drama and chaos that was happening behind the scenes that it just sort of dragged the legion of superheroes down it dragged this entire comic book down and there you go that's what happened so anyway i've been talking around it for i would say probably long enough i just want to get going into this basically what i want to do and it's kind of too late now for me to say that uh you know there's no preamble here no there's actually a shit ton of preamble but anyway uh, uh basically what i want to do is just go ahead and finally get down to business. This is The Legion of Superheroes, number two. Cover date is December 1989. Executive editor is Dick Giordano. Cover artist is Keith... Uh, cover artists are Keith Giffen and Al Gordon. Writers are Keith Giffen, Tom Beerbaum, Mary Beerbaum, and Al Gordon. Penciler is Keith Giffen. The GIF. Inker is Al Gordon. Colorist is Tom McCraw. Letterer is Todd Klein. Editor is Mark Wade. And story synopsis is as follows. On Rimbor, the Kuns seek revenge against Kono, a girl who humiliated them quite a long time ago. Kalakik, a Kundish warrior, establishes a partnership with the chairman of Silver Ale Limited on the planet Rimbor. They agree that, that both uh, Jonah and Kono both need to die. The Kuns want Kono dead because she shamed the Empire in some unspecified way, while the unnamed corporate executive wants Joe dead because he's been interfering with Silver Ale Limited's business operations. 
To that end, SP officers swarm through the Rimborian underworld in pursuit of Kona. The SP shoot up a, a, a Rimborian strip joint, killing customer and employee alike. They even kill a few of their own in the chaos, although they agree to cover it up. Still. Kono, evo uh, Kono evades both death and capture. Meanwhile, and elsewhere, Lyda and Loomis are traveling to Cthulhu. And they're talking about stuff. Elsewhere, Siobhan is being secretly investigated by Cersei, her commander in the SP. Cersei is also knocking boots with Dirk Morgna, which is to say, Siobhan's non-boyfriend. Or her boyfriend. Or her passing acquaintance, or whatever. Anyway, back on Rimbor, the SPs are pulled out of action and relieved by Algronsk and Kastan, two robotic assassins. The assassins then attack Kono and Jonah by blowing up Joe's entire apartment building. However, Joe and Kono both survive thanks to their powers. Joe then beats the crap out of the extremely well-mannered would-be assassins. After the fight, in the fiery wreckage of the building that Algronsk and Kaston exploded real good a few pages ago, Joe searches for the shaving brush he was using earlier in the story. It was a gift from uh, Rock Crin with LLL engraved on it, which stands for Long Live the Legion. Joe wants to keep that. Elsewhere, Roxas, the psycho-loony, nutjob, genocidal lunatic, is released from prison. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, I don't think it's going to be too much of a secret, or for that matter, too much of a surprise to anybody if I, just say, if I were to say that, uh, guys, I fucking love this issue. You know, I'm, look, I'm going to be real honest with you guys. I'll be the first to admit that the gifts art is a little bit of an acquired taste, right? For, there are people out there who, I don't know, they idolize the likes of, I don't know, Barry Windsor Smith or, or, or John Byrne or Dave Cockrum or, you know, people like that. And for a good chunk of the... Uh, of this run of Legion of Superheroes, you know, I think the GIF uses a sort of, I don't know, it's kind of an esoteric uh, line style that he's that, he, that he's using here, and I'll go out on a limb and say it's a little bit of an acquired taste, but at least for me, I really dig it. I love the art, I love the writing, and I'm... It's not that I don't think anybody else can draw the Legion of Superheroes. It's just that when it when it comes to the five years later era, I find myself just overall less invested in a given issue of Legion if it's not drawn by the GIF. You know, that's not a mark of disrespect against anybody else. It's it for me. It's really just an acknowledgement that. I'm not here just for the GIF's art, but that is definitely one of the big selling points, at least for me, you know? So, you know, I expect I'm, you know, as I go through all, you know, all of these different Legion of Superheroes issues, I expect I'm probably going to go full fanboy on a lot of this art uh, by the GIF. And, you know, I'm just going to have to do my best, guys, because this, I don't know, I just, I, I, I love it. And so... 
getting into page one, really what it comes down to for me is just the the level of atmosphere that that's apparent on this page. Literally from page one, you really get an idea of just how, you know, seedy and nasty and dingy the, the planet Rimbor is. And you've got these, uh, the, these SP officers that are just, you know, wandering around this just the scummiest, dirtiest, filthiest, nastiest looking alley. And it really does set the tone of what, what Rimbor is. I mean, I guess maybe one way of looking at it is it's, it's sort of like Las Vegas meets Detroit in a weird kind of way. Just, you know, this rundown, nasty, crappy looking buildings and everything. But there's all this neon and flashing uh, signs all over the place. And so you get this this weird sort of I don't know, juxtaposition of haves and have-nots. And you know what? Maybe that's not a bad way to, to sum up what life on the planet Rimbor is really like, you know? So anyway... Especially, uh, this is, well, I, I, actually, I called this page one. This isn't actually page one. Technically, it's page two. Page one is, I guess we should probably go through this in sort of sequence. Page one, is it's basically a text piece. It looks like it's, well, it basically looks kind of like an, like an iPad. It's a, a news feed of, I can't figure out if this is a couple of different news sources or... If this is a bunch of different uh, Daily Planet uh, columns or what, but basically the the sort of top paragraph here, this is all really gossipy. Uh, I don't know, it, almost tabloid type stuff that you know that we're seeing printed here. Uh, what is Tinya hiding? And this is obviously kind of old news at this point because Tinya is presumed dead at, at this stage. In the modern day, you know, at the time in which this issue takes place. So this obviously takes place sometime in the past. Uh, the headline says, what is Tinya hiding? And basically the, the reporter, you know, ventures a guess that uh, Tinya and Jonah, they they got married in secret quite a long time ago. And so this announcement that, that they're getting married and it's going to be like a public ceremony. This won't actually be the first time that they've walked down the aisle together and the this news article again it's not really clear if this is supposed to be from the daily planet or not because it refers to the daily planet as the daily plant it and it just kind of raises the question of well if this person does write for the daily planet why are they shit talking their employer and for that matter why would the daily planet editor allow this to go through you know so it, it's a little bit unclear at least to me so take that for whatever you think it's worth. Elsewhere, uh, we get a little bit of, uh, uh, we get a sample of the lifestyle section of the Daily Planet, and it's talking about the the wedding of uh, Jonah and Tinya Wazoo, or Wazo, I should say, as sort of a, this is something, this is something that you'd read, like I say, on the society page, right? Uh, and then elsewhere, this is a, uh, uh, yet another uh, news story that's coming in from uh, uh, the Daily Planet. This is more like a fashion uh, section. And here again, it's another story about the Legion of Superheroes. And what I like about this is the... 
This basically sets up the Legion of Superheroes, not just as superheroes, not even just as public figures, but they're kind of like celebrities. And when you think about it, that's probably the best way of processing who the Legion is and what they do, at least in normal times. I mean, obviously, five years later, this these do not take place in, you know, these stories do not take place in normal times. But it does go, you know, little stories like this basically establish that, you know, the, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the, the Legionnaires are basically, like I say, just they're celebrities. They're, they're at times sort of tabloid fodder. So that's an important thing to keep in mind, you know, in terms of world building. Now, how much of this does it really have to do with the story at hand? Well, apart from the fact that, you know, for those just joining us, that uh, uh, Jonah and Tinyawazo are are married to one another. It's important that you guys are aware of that. It's important that the reader understands that. Apart from that, this is really just some kind of interesting world building type stuff for the most part. So anyway, so that's page one. Page two, I misidentified as page one, and we've kind of already talked about that. So getting into page three, this is this is kind of an interesting uh, uh, meeting, I guess. I'm not completely sure how to pronounce this character's name. When I was doing the the summary for this story, I referred to this character as Kalakik. And the reason for that is because I'm really not sure how to pronounce this guy's name. It's spelled, or not Kalakik, sorry, Kakakik. And the reason I refer to him that way, Kakakik, uh, the spelling is K-A-K-I-Q-I-K, and I'm not really completely sure how to pronounce that name. A lot of these names are never, they were never, at least I don't think they were ever really intended to, to be spoken out loud, you know? And so you're kind of on your own in terms of figuring out, well, how would you pronounce some of these words? And to me, that's kind of one of the charms of the Legion of Superheroes or at least it should be. I mean, it's definitely a love it or leave it type of thing, you know, where you kind of have to acknowledge that a lot of these names are just weird and goofy and just kind of strange. Like, uh, like this guy, Kalakik, or I keep saying Kalakik, Kakikik. And he's, um, he's basically a, a member of the Kundish race. Kund, right? That ends with a D. When you say the word kund, you kind of need to make sure that you're going extra careful with that uh, consonant of D. Because if it sounds like you're saying T, well, that is virtually guaranteed to offend somebody if they think you're running around talking about kunds. So anyway, yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah. So the the other thing I like about this is uh, this, this uh, kundish guy, he's... He's basically got a really terrible, a really terrible mastery of interlac, uh, because he's sitting here, he's talking to the Silver Ale executive, and he says, you have my symphony, rather than sympathy. So interlac is probably not even this guy's third language, and I don't know, it's just, as a general thing, I've always sort of associated the Kuns in the Legion of Superheroes as sort of like the equivalent of the Klingons, right? It's not quite an exact 
you know, one-to-one sort of a comparison. But in terms of just being fearsome warriors, I always thought there is, there are, I think, quite a few similarities between Klingons and Kuns. So the fact that the the Kundish Empire is apparently pissed off enough at Kono that they're coming to Rimbor specifically to track her down because they want her dead. That is and should be cause for concern for just about anybody, guys. So anyway, and that's page three. And like I say, I mean, you know, what we're doing here on this here on page three is we're establishing the threat. All right. The immediate threat that's going to be going on throughout this issue. But as we're doing all of that, the GIF basically gives uh, Kakakik, like I say, just really horrible uh, interlac, and so it's actually kind of, it's actually kind of funny, you know, reading some of this dialogue, especially where he says, we would pay extremely, whatever that means, for the opportunity to eradicate her, meaning, meaning Kono. And, I don't know, just, it's just fun. That's fun. So, anyway, from there, uh, I would say that the main thrust of this story, we are, it's now in full swing. Because here on page four, uh, the SPs are now in hot pursuit of Kono, and shots are getting fired. And as all of this is going on, it becomes pretty clear based on Kono's internal monologue. She's a pretty, she's a pretty extreme feminist, you know. Uh, the female of any species is the only one that she has any kind of respect for, and so. The end result of that is she's she basically finds herself underestimating the SPs and then later on the uh, the uh, robotic assassins. She she underestimates them time and time again because she's she's not really processing the fact that, you know, just because these things are male or at least in the case of the uh, the robots, they're not even really male or female, they're not even alive, they're just robots. Because of the fact that they're not female, they must not be a threat. That nearly gets her in trouble quite a few times throughout throughout this issue. So anyway, all in all, this is a... Uh, and then there's also just like from a technical standpoint, I really enjoy... I just like this page. I mean, because... We're not, we, we already got kind of a glimpse of Kono on page two. And so there's not a whole lot of effort that's being uh, shown in, uh, or there's not a whole lot of effort that's being made in showing her her, uh, her Kono's face again on page four. You, it's almost like if you wanted to picture this as like it's a TV show, you can almost imagine that the camera, there's there are a lot of quick cuts and it's not that queasy cam type stuff, but this is all a very chaotic uh, sequence that's happening here as Kono uh, takes cover in the Rimborian uh, strip club. She's trying to find a place to hide and basically temp- uh, tensions are running high, uh, emotions are running high, and she's not exactly panicking, but she's definitely she's, she's feeling the stress right now. And all of that is, it's, I think, conveyed really masterfully with the art here on page four. So 
Anyway, just dig all of that. After that, a firefight erupts, and that's on page four. I'm going to skip some stuff here. Uh, this takes us into page six. Basically, it's... Well, I say it's a firefight. It's actually a pretty one-sided thing. Basically, the SPs completely shoot up the the uh, Rimborian strip club. I mean, you see all these dead bodies and stuff just laying around, and you even see the body of the the uh, the dead the dead uh, SP that at least for a moment had had Kono cornered before Kono made her escape. You see her, she's lying dead on the ground. And it's like it doesn't completely sink in with the SPs that this was friendly fire. You know, it's not that Kono killed uh, this SP, Del, that's her name, uh, Del. It's not that Kono killed Del or one of the the, uh, the strip club's uh, patrons or employees. It's not that one of them killed Del. Del was killed by her fellow SPs, and so... The fact that they don't realize that right away, and then the fact that they instantly decide to cover it up, pretty much tells you who we're dealing with here. I mean, that is low. But anyway, at the bottom of page six, uh, the uh, SPs inside of uh, the strip club, they basically hear from their superior officer telling them that, look, you guys need to pull back. You've been relieved. Shit's about to go down. And that actually ties into what was going on on page five when the cybernetic assassins receive their orders and are sent down to the planet. And we get our first real look at them uh, right here on page seven. And, you know, the thing about this is they are extremely polite. They are extremely well-mannered, you know, as, I guess as far as assassins go. Uh, at the bottom of page seven, one of them says to the other, Congratulations, you've spotted her, Algronsk. And then Algronsk uh, responds, Oh no, I'm certain you spotted her first, Caston. Ah, but you were the first to confirm it by checking the tracking data. Oh, you're simply too kind. You know, and I don't know why, but it's like in the middle of this really dark story, in the context of this really dark a series of comics, you get little flashes of humor like this, and it really does a lot to, to I guess, break up some of the seriousness of it. I mean, I'm not one of those people who needs everything to be a fucking Care Bears cartoon, but, you know, little, little bits of, you know, levity like this, I don't know, they make some of the more dramatic stuff hit all the harder. At least that's what I think. So... Uh, moving right along, we get a, a commercial here on page eight. It's a it's a commercial for a silver ale, and I guess the thing that I like about this, you know, there's a similar sort of I don't know what to call it. It's almost a it's the same type of wit, I would say, that you see in uh, the first RoboCop movie. This really kind of cynical. Uh, uh, sense of humor where you have two conflicting ideas encountering each other in the context of uh, business or commerce or entertainment media or whatever. You saw that a lot 
in RoboCop. Uh, I forget the director's name, but that's one of the things he kind of specializes in. You know, that kind of uh, cynical wit in the context of media, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, military propaganda or if it's just a plain old uh, product commercial or just whatever else. That same type of wit is one of the... Uh, one of those, and again, I, forgive me, I probably should have written his name down, but I've completely forgotten it, but whatever. The guy that directed Basic Instinct, the guy that directed the first RoboCop movie, the guy that directed Starship Troopers, this is the same guy, right? And you, this is just one of those things that pops up as kind of an occasional element of his work. And I, that's what this advertisement here on page eight sort of reminds me of, where you have this really highbrow, fancy-schmancy type of alcohol that's being marketed to the 99%, even though only the 1% can really afford it. And no one seems to see a problem with that. And getting into page 9, Joe himself even remarks on that. And... I don't know. It's just, like I say, it, it's the same type of uh, cynical wit that that I've always sort of associated with uh, those, with a lot of the, uh, commer like the phony baloney commercials and infomercials and whatnot from the first Robocop movie. That, I think, is when that type of approach was really done at its best. And that same type of thing is what's going on here, and I think I'm kind of belaboring the point. So... Basically, what we're seeing here on page nine is uh, Jenny and Joe are what this what this page is really attempting to do is establish their. It's not completely clear if this is a romantic relationship or if they're just roommates or teammates or, or friends or what. But, I, you know, I, it's wide open to interpretation. I suppose a lot of people who read this might assume that Joe and Jenny are involved with each other, but it, it's really, it's all in how you look at it. But it's basically, in part, what we're seeing here on, on page nine is setting up, I guess, if nothing else, the fact of Jenny, because that's going to become relevant very shortly. Not to mention the fact that Jenny and Kono don't really get along all that well. And Kono doesn't really know what a shaving kit is. We're establishing the importance of the shaving kit. And the reason I'm mentioning all this technical stuff is, is to say that when you're writing anything, if you're writing a book or if you're writing a comic book, a screenplay, whatever, you cannot have a scene that does just one thing. You need to have scenes that do two or three or four different things all at the same time. And the reason for that is because you only have so many pages in a comic book or you only have so much uh, screen time in your movie or in your TV episode. You can't afford to have one scene that does one thing. And so what we're seeing here, I think, on page nine is some really masterful storytelling where we set up the fact and importance of uh, Ginny, the fact that Rimbor is a shithole and... Uh, Jonah has no particular love for Silver Ale Limited, kind of reaffirming what's been happening, what happened and what was said earlier in this issue on page two or three, I think. Uh, the fact that uh, Ginny and, and Kono don't especially like each other, 
the fact that Jonah still has a shaving kit that was given to him by uh, Rock. And this is, in my opinion, this is just some incredibly fucking masterful storytelling that's being done here by the GIF. And on top of all that, as if all that wasn't good enough already, we get just some really expressive uh, art and facial expressions that are going on here. Uh, again, page nine. We get um, page nine, panel three. This is uh, Jenny. She's sort of looking just past the camera. And she's got... I'm not even sure how best to pronounce, uh, how best to describe this. Maybe it's uh, curiosity, I suppose. Uh, she's just very interested in what Jonah's in such a bad mood about. Uh, page nine, panel six. We we see uh, Jonah's basically a little bit surly throughout this whole page, and certainly surly is maybe the best way to describe his facial expression uh, here in page six. He just looks annoyed kind of about everything. Life, in general, at this point, is kind of pissing Jonah off a little bit. Then, uh, right here in page nine, or panel nine, I should say, panel nine, page nine, uh, Kono just looks completely bamboozled, like, what is this white gunk you have all over your face? She doesn't know what shaving cream is. She, You know what? That's actually a really good question. I, I wonder how people shave in the 31st century, or 30th century, I suppose. That's... I'm at a loss, actually, to think of a of an issue, uh, any issue of Legion of Superheroes that shows anybody shaving. So, yeah, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, she would be totally confused by that. Like, shaving cream? What the hell's that? So, anyway, like I say, just some really well done facial expressions, masterful pacing and storytelling all through this page. Virtually every single panel on page nine contribute something really important to this issue, you know? And this is the work of a master, all right? It's the work of a master. So getting into page 10, the the robotic assassins, they intercept Jenny, and they basically beat her to death. As well. I mean, she's dead by the end of page 10. She's introduced on page 9, dead by the end of page 10. And basically, the cybernetic assassins needed... They needed her to tell them where to find Jonah and Kono. And indeed they did, or she did. And so basically what these people do, uh, what, what the assassins do is they just blow up the entire fucking apartment building. All right. And if the, the shootout in the strip club didn't give it away, you need to understand, guys, that Rimbor is no fairy tale world. All right. The this is very much a shoot first, ask questions later type of place. I mean, maybe the the comparison I, I should have made earlier is Las Vegas meets Mos Eisley. Because, guys, this is not a place for the faint of heart, you know? You need to have eyes in the back of your head because you never know when you might get shot to death because of stuff that has nothing to do with you. And so this and that actually takes us straight into page 13. And off the top of my head, I reserve the right to be wrong, but off the top of my head, there are not very many full-page splashes 
to be found anywhere in the entire five years later run, at least when the GIF is on the book. And so when these occasional uh, full-page uh, splashes come along, they're... I think they hit home all the more precisely because of the fact that the GIF really does choose his moment, you know? Uh, he doesn't use a splash page as a crutch. This is meant to emphasize the danger and the peril that's that, that's facing uh, Jonah and Kono. And the fact that, let's face it, everybody on Rimbor seems to have basically no regard for the lives and well-being of others. So just something to keep in mind there. After that, getting into page 14, we get more more of this dialogue, uh, extremely polite and very friendly dialogue between this is Algronsk and Kaston. They're being extremely polite with one another. Almost, <laughs> this is just, again, it's just really just sort of dark humor that we see when one of their heads bursts into flame. And, you know, instead of, you know, screaming in pain and agony, uh, the one with his head on fire says, oh dear, oh dear. The other one says, your head seems to be aflame. The the guy that's on fire says, excuse me, excuse me, but I must put this out. And after that, Jonah comes onto the scene. He pretty much figured out, like, what's happened at this point. And he, this is actually, again, this is some really well done, and I would say very insightful dialogue when it comes to Jonah. He says, uh, just a little taste of flash vision. And uh, the assassin says, Jonah, then you did survive. Jonah replies, that's why they call it invulnerability, pal. And the assassin says, but how did you know to use it? And Jonah replies, I don't drop it needlessly. And you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, Jonah has quite a range of superpowers. The, the limitation, though, is he can only use one at a time, right? So let's think this over for, for just a minute, all right? He's got... Uh, let's see. They, actually, you know what? I can just read this directly off of the... Yeah, here we go. Um, I can actually read this just right off the page because I actually explain what his powers are right here on page 11. It says, uh, Ultra Energy allows use of one power at any given time. Ultra Strength, Ultra Speed, and Vulnerability, Penetra Vision, Flash Vision, Ultra Breath, Anti-Grav. All right, so let's just think about this for a second, guys. Jonah isn't always calling upon his strength. He's not always calling upon his speed. He's not always using that. He's not always using his vision powers. He's not always using ultra breath, and he's not always flying. Right? Now, my understanding is he can use any of his powers or none of them. He can't use all of them at the same time, but he doesn't necessarily have to be using any of them at any given moment. So... Why would you not choose to be invulnerable because you never know when somebody might come gunning for you? It doesn't make sense to not be invulnerable if, unless you need to be using one of your other powers at that moment. And for as logical as that is, it never occurred, at least to me, to, to think about Jonah using his powers in quite that way. So again, this is the work of a master, guys. So that's that's 
that business at the bottom of page 14, the fight's on. And honestly, it's not too much really of a fight. I mean, Jonah's basically kicking both of their asses. And if I may say so, the cybernetic assassins here, they don't really stand much of a chance against somebody who's packing the kind of raw firepower that, that Jonah's packing. So anyway, so that, but that's pages 14 and 15 on page 16. The fight spills into the sewers below and coincidentally co comes crashing into uh, Kono's hiding place. Jonah escaped the, the building explosion just by virtue of the fact that he was using his invulnerability at that time. Kono escaped it by using her intangibility powers. And so they both survived using their powers, but they both ended up in different places. Jonah ended up on street level, whereas Kono, by virtue of the fact that she was using her dematerialization powers, sank through street level and landed in, in the sewers below. And so, anyway, so Jonah and the assassin, uh, they come crashing through the street and down into the sewers, and in fact, almost land on Kono, and they're taking turns beating the shit out of each other. And at least for the moment, one of the assassins, and this is getting into page 17, one of the assassins uh, corners Kono. He temporarily uh, disables uh, Jonah, or at least stuns him, turns his attention on Kono, and basically makes it clear to her, hey, I'm here to kill you. And that's really just about as far as he gets when Kono basically merges the assassin's mass with the ground and he basically sinks into the ground and that's pretty much that. So out of nowhere, and this again is where Kono's, I'm just going to call it what it is, sexism kind of works against her. She doesn't really consider herself to be in actual danger because of the fact that she's not up against a woman. And for a moment, this the other cybernetic assassin, just he almost is able to kill her because of that, you know? And so... Jonah, luckily, swoops to the rescue. That's on page 18. He, he basically blasts uh, the cybernetic assassin uh, into oblivion. He falls down a chasm. Uh, flaming and uh, pretty much just falling to his death and Kono even asks, you know, why didn't you do that in the first place? And the thing is, my sense of Jonah is that he's one of those guys who he kind of enjoys using his powers he enjoys getting into fights and stuff he's basically Han Solo with powers, you know he's this kind of roguish type and so he doesn't mind, you know, getting into fist fights with people, you know? And so he doesn't necessarily, you know, if he ever finds himself in a fight, he doesn't necessarily look for the fastest and most efficient way to get out of the fight. He kind of, he just sort of enjoys the moment a little bit. Yeah, a lot of people died for no reason when the, the apartment building exploded. And yes, Jonah truly is righteously pissed off about that, but... At the end of the day, this is a fight, and he kind of enjoyed himself a little bit, you know? And I think that's why it never occurred to him to use his uh, his uh, flash vision or heat... Fuck it, I'm just going to call it heat vision, because that's what this is. Uh, it didn't occur to him to use his heat vision 
sooner to end the fight. So, anyway. Elsewhere, uh, this is on page 19, uh, this is uh, on uh, the planet Earth, we get a little bit of world building and, and a character development, and I would, I would say also a little bit of exposition goings on with Siobhan Aaron uh, being under surveillance by uh, Cersei. And then on top of that, the fact that, let's face it, Cersei and, and, and Dirk are, well, they're fucking. But Dirk also has the hots for Siobhan. So it seems like there are a lot of redheads who are doing it with each other here. And come to that. All right, just a second. I want to get a drag off my e-cig here. Hold on. Oh, yeah. You know, come to that, it does actually kind of make you wonder, you know, is Cersei wearing this this uh, red hair uh, wig precisely to make herself more attractive to Dirk? I mean, is that, is that what's going on? You know, because, you know, Siobhan Aaron obviously is a red, like, natural redhead, whereas Cersei has what looks like kind of blonde hair cut up into a mohawk or something and then we see her put on a wig and it's like is that why she's wearing the wig you know and uh, I don't know I mean when you think about it the whole thing is kind of a it is kind of a weird situation I guess maybe maybe that's the way to put it but the you know the fact is you know there's just something just and it becomes clear, I think, as as the series progresses, you know, goings on with Dirk and what exactly his his malfunction is, a lot of the personal problems he has. I'm not necessarily a fan of those things, but there's this disreputable air that Dirk has had all through the series up to this point, and he's going to have, God knows, going forward. And it does kind of... It all seems to harmonize... I, I think with itself pretty well. So, anyway, whatever you want to take from that, I don't know. So, anyway, uh, moving right along, we see, we see, uh, this is uh, Jonah. He's basically wandering around through the flaming wreckage of what had been his apartment building, searching and searching, and he finally finds the uh, shaving kit. And it kind of makes you wonder, you know, why would he care so much about getting the shaving kit back, or at least the, the shaving cream brush? Why would he care so much about getting the brush back until you see the inscription uh, written on the underside of the brush where it says LLL Rock? And you understand he wanted to get a little bit of a memento, a present that he got from a friend, and a memento of a happier time in his life than what he's stuck living in right now. And here again, this is the work of a master because the... the uh, this kind of forlorn expression that that you, you see on Jonah's face on uh, this is page 21 panel 8 he just looks lost you know and just filled with regret and it's just it's a very real emotion and again this is the work of a master guys so 
don't underestimate the GIF. Now, getting into the last page here, we basically get this is Roxas's internal, I don't even know what else to call it, except internal dialogue is, is what it is. It's basically all of his inner voices that are talking to each other. And if it wasn't, it's going to become clear, I think. And, you know, if, if it's not clear here, it definitely becomes crystal clear in the issues to come that this guy is just nuts. Okay. He's completely, he's gone. And I think that becomes, like I say, more, more obvious in, you know, the issues to come, but it's made very apparent right here that this is just, I mean, he even has multiple dialogue balloons coming out of his mouth. Uh, this is on page 22, panel eight. He's got multiple dialogue balloons. They, they've got different colors, different shapes. Uh, they've got different fonts going on. And these are just different, different personalities, really. And here again, this is just the work of a master that all of that can be com conveyed in a readable way, but it's still visual. And it's just ridiculously well done. I just love it so much. I love this series. And certainly I'm going to be looking forward to, uh, you know, talking about more issues in uh, the very near future. And, um, yeah, I guess uh, the, the next one up on the docket is going to be Legion of Superheroes. Actually, this is Volume 4. I think I called this Volume 3 earlier, but technically, actually, it's, uh, it's Volume 4. So, but anyway, uh, the next one that I'm going to be talking about is Legion of Superheroes, Volume 4, Number 3. Can't promise that that's going to be next month, or next week, I should say. I can't promise that that's going to be next week, because I don't necessarily guarantee, you know, a weekly release anymore. But that's going to be the next, the next, the next episode. That's going to be what I'm going to be talking about. Legion of Superheroes, Number 3. And that... I think is pretty much it for me for right now. So, bye everybody. I'll see you next time. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, 
I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>